0: Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. Glad to have you here with us for what is our third episode discussing the Proverbs and also discussing rest. We will track with the lesson quarterly, um, you know, we'll, we'll touch uh, base with it a couple of times throughout the, the quarter. We have, however, uh, done several recordings on on concepts of rest and Sabbath in in previous episodes. We'd encourage you to listen to those. And uh, we're sort of uh, diving into Proverbs, uh, partly because it's a fun thing to do, partly because there's lots of wisdom, and partly because it's a book that does not seem to get discussed as much as perhaps it ought. Or at least I'm finding them more interesting the more I I'd, I'd look into them. Uh, before we before we start with that, now, sorry, Locke's here, Ken's here, Luke's not we here We both
1: yet. are. We're both here in the very same location.
2: That's right. Yeah. I'm enjoying a holiday down in Tasmania, especially enjoying it because it was right on the edge as to whether it would be able to go ahead. But I made it out of New South Wales, I'm following all the rules, and I'm enjoying some time in Tassie.
0: Well, before we jump into the book of Proverbs, I just wanted to share a book that's related to both the concept of rest and the concept of proverb, Um, and that's a book by Michael Lunig. It's called The Curly Pajama Letters. And it is a, uh, a fictional account of some correspondence between two, two people. Uh, one of them is a wandering soul who's out exploring his own world in the company of a duck, which is his direction finding duck. He follows the duck, which apparently always points towards new joys. And uh, his name is Vasco Pajama, which is a, uh, a parody on Vas- Vasco da Gama, wasn't it? Who was a, uh, an explorer. Um, and the other is Mr. Curley, who lives at Curley Flats. And Curley is a stay-at-home type, and they correspond with each other. And it's some delightful correspondence. Uh, Vasco has to endure many dangers. There's a, there's a picture that I'm looking here of Vasco Pajama riding a couch through some very stormy seas, and there would be at least 50 lighthouses in close proximity to each other. And the, the caption reads, uh, Vasco pajamas perilous voyage through the dreaded strait of a thousand lighthouses. <laughs> oh, very good. There's something very, very resonant uh, with that caption. with With everyday life, we we do live in a society where everyone claims to have not just a useful insight, but the all important insight into into what life means. And navigating the lighthouses seems to me at least as difficult as, as nam- uh, navigating the shoals of rocks.
1: Yeah, couple, two, three lighthouses would give you a wonderful ability to triangulate. A thousand might be just entirely confusing.
0: <laughs> There's one point in his journey when uh, Vasco Pajama is a bit worried and he notices that uh, the world is not going to last forever. And uh, how ought we live in these circumstances, he says... We act as if the worst is not going to happen. In the light of all this, Curly, I ask you as I ask myself each morning, what is worth doing and what is worth having? These are big questions and I'm curious about your answers. I look forward to hearing from you. For the time being, I have my faith and I'm doing what I can. Yours cheerfully and entirely seriously, Vasco Pajama. Mr. Curly replies, Dear Vasco, in response to your question, what is worth doing and what is worth having, I'd like to say simply this. It is worth doing nothing and having a rest. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and that's the lesson for the week
0: <laughs> yeah well uh, last episode we, we observed that uh, rest is recommended to us in the Bible and in um, our Sabbath school quarterly as uh, something of wisdom it's wise to have moments of rest uh, but in our discussion last week we concluded that, the, that seeking wisdom itself brings rest when when your view of the world lines up with the way the world actually is that that makes life easier and uh, we're going to pick up on some of those themes and continue looking at some proverbs and look you want to kick us off i think you had something in proverbs four
2: yeah proverbs four i i don't know whether in the book of proverbs it actually makes sense to go looking for the context of a particular verse because a lot of the chapters in Proverbs seem to be a collection of sayings. Sometimes they build, sometimes they seem to just be a disparate collection.
0: I, I found I was reading through Proverbs in preparation for this, and I found a couple of Proverbs in various places that began with the same line, the same opening. The, the wrath of a king is like the roar of a lion, but, the, but then the finishing line was different in different places. Right uh, which I found really really interesting it's like they were employing a sort of a common theme it was like they're sort of a knock knock who's there or why did the chicken cross the road or that uh, there's a similar opening but it was diverted into into different places and then last week we looked at uh, you know 4 or 5 verses i think it was that that seemed to build but i agree that on the whole that doesn't seem to be the case as much
2: Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 16 which jumped out at me but i think we need to at least start at verse 14 Perhaps at verse 10.
0: Sounds good.
1: I'll start. Listen, my son. Accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. I will guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble.
0: Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way.
2: For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong they are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day the way of the wicked is like deep darkness they do not know what they stumble over and the chapter can, continues to the end with with this exhortation to seek the path of wisdom but the reason that chapter, that verse 16 jumped out at me was because of this idea: they can't rest until they've done something wrong. The the restlessness that is driven by that desire to do evil.
1: Uh, the the converse of that um, is in the title of a book uh, by John Eldridge that I uh, read a while ago, and it's called "The Utter Relief of Holiness," and and. When you think about it, there is a certain relief and rest in the right. If you've done the right thing, even if bad things do happen to you, at least you can rest comfortably knowing that you've done the right thing. Mm. Um, And I I thought that was a a great title. But here, the the evil can't rest until they've done the wrong thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it speaks, I think, in the proverb here, it's talking in a sort of like we've encountered many other places, an exaggeration, an exaggerated language to sort of reinforce a point. But it does speak to something that's quite profound, in my opinion. A lot of perhaps evil or foolish lines of thinking really do result in this endless restlessness. Um, I mean, just one trivial example, the saying we have, keeping up with the Joneses, the idea that you would constantly compare yourself to someone else is not perhaps evil, but it seems at least a little bit foolish. And its direct result is to cause this restlessness.
0: Look, there's another learning cartoon about that with a a guy sitting on the couch saying, "I, I just can't, I just can't do it anymore. I just can't do it. Life's too hectic. I can't, I can't keep up with the Joneses anymore. And his wife says, what? What do you mean? We, we are the Joneses. He says, <laughs> are we? She says, yes, look at your driver's license. And he pulls it out and looks at it he says, well, this this only confirms what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Compare it to luck with the sentiment from the previous chapter, verse 21 onwards. My son, preserve sound, judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go your own way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Ah. And the thing that will make our sweet, uh, our sleep sweet is uh, sound judgment and discernment. Now, a judgment's a difficult one. Uh, Mark Twain, I think it was, once said that a good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> there's there's the saying uh, about the uh, uh, the superior pilot is the one who uses his superior judgment, so that he never has to use his superior
0: skill. Uh, one one element though to living in a culture and a society is I think it is very often the case that good judgment comes from experience, which comes from bad judgment, but it doesn't have to be our own bad judgment. And when when you belong to a community, to a body of people. That has a culture and that has a a past and a history that, and and there are and indeed something such as the Bible, which is a record of many people's bad judgment. Uh, it does really give us the opportunity to acquire good judgment in slightly less uh, costly ways.
2: So there's a really interesting example of that in an aspect of physics that's used in medical science. So. I'm lecturing this coming semester a subject on medical radiation signs or physics. In, there's a lot of ways radiation is used in medicine. There's, it's used for diagnostics, you know, the classic x-ray of a broken bone. It's also used for uh, treatment, for therapy, radiation therapy to, to try and remove tumors. But the question obviously arises, what's the safe limit for radiation on this patient? And the uh, the way a physicist would answer that question would be to line up a whole series of patients, give them each incrementally more radiation dose than the one before, and just wait to see where's the safe limit. I say that's what a physicist would do, because we tend to do experiments on inanimate things like lead spheres or atoms. Obviously, you can't with humans. And the point that I make really, really, really repetitively to these students that I'm lecturing is the safety thresholds that are adopted in medical radiation science are pretty much entirely informed by the freak accidents or events that have occurred in history that have been the opportunities for us to see what happened, unfortunately, when humans are exposed to radiation. So there are some that are a little bit more systematic. It turns out that airline flight crews, for example, are, Exposed to more radiation just because they spend many time, many hours at high altitude, and the, they've got less atmosphere shielding them from cosmic radiation. But then there's obviously various nuclear power accidents that have happened. Even survivors of the nuclear weapons that were used at the end of World War II were. Look, there was one gentleman who, who survived
0: cell. both. There was one gentleman, Locke, who who survived both atomic bombs. He he survived the first and then went home. And it was Hiroshima was first, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. And then, and then he travelled home to Nagasaki. <laughs> and he survived that as well. So,
2: There are some crazy stories. There was one Russian scientist who actually survived a radiation dose which was about a thousand times higher than the lethal dose. And we know that it's lethal. The reason he survived is that it was not a full-body exposure. He put his head into the beamline of a particle accelerator because something wasn't working right, and he didn't realise it had not been shut down properly. And he put his head in and had a very, very high energy dose, but in a very tightly focused beam that went through his head, uh, under his left eye and out the back, and involved... There was, you know, there was a lot of tissue damage locally, but because it was only a very small portion of his body, um, just right through his brain, uh, he was fine and has lived a pretty normal life since. So, uh, you know, there's lots of ways in which radiation can impact with a complex thing like a human body. And because we can't, for ethical reasons, go and do the sorts of systematic experiments, we really have to do what we're talking about here. We have to learn from other people's poor judgment um, in order to have good judgment or somewhat good judgment moving forward. It raises an interesting
1: question uh, about uh, what it means uh, to have knowledge. And last week we looked at the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge. Hmm. Um, and what you're referring to, I think, Lachlan, is uh, a limitation on acquiring experiential knowledge. Uh, and the fact that it, it needs, in fact, uh, to often our, our judgment. It, is informed by the experiences of others uh, and how they've relayed them to us. And C.S. Lewis uh, refers to this uh, in one of his essays uh, in the book The Weight of Glory, um, uh, where he says that, in fact, most of what we classify as knowledge uh, and that we rely on day-to-day as knowledge um, comes to us from authoritative sources and not from our own experience. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, even here in this proverb, the, you know, it seems to be a an intergenerational transfer of advice. It starts, hear my child and accept my words. There's, I have taught you the way of wisdom uh, and keep hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Uh, verse 13, there does seem to be this idea that the knowledge, at least part of the knowledge that's being referred to as valuable, has been built up by another person
0: there's something more subtle about this too though because um it's not just that we're relying on other people it's that, that sometimes the things being discussed are things that a single person could not empirically determine so for instance if you said i'm going to conduct an experiment i'm going to live one life as a selfless person and one life as a selfish person and i will i'll then work out which is the better life? Well, to start with, you don't have two lives, so that can't be done. But even if it could be done, almost certainly both lives would conclude with you saying, "Ah, that's definitely the best way to live life," because because one of the f- features of being selfish is that it's it becomes increasingly important.
2: Oh, it's obviously mm.
0: what they're, they're not looking out for my interests. If no, if you don't look out for your own interests yourselves, no one else will. You know, and and the more selfish you are the more you notice that other people are not caring. about Did you see that? He cut me off and he didn't in traffic and he didn't even... what? It's so selfish. And, and see that person? They got a pay rise and I didn't get a pay rise. And, and the more selfish you are, the more you notice this, the more you're quick to take offence, the more you are certain that if, if you are not looking out for your own interests, you're going to miss out badly. So um, it's not just that we're relying on other people because it's nicer to use someone else's mistakes than your own. It's that some of the issues here about what makes a good life are a thing that that cannot be tested empirically by an individual. So uh, it's like this person who, who cannot sleep until they do evil. Um, one of the functions, one of the properties of evil is that it masquerades as good. And, and, um, and the more you give into it, the more right and normal it, it seems. That's one of the really, really dangerous Things And it's not not evil in all its forms, including, for instance, um, religious bigotry. And when you look at the Pharisees, we've referred to them previously, uh, who were so close on so many occasions to truth, Um, but were convinced, you know, there's that great line where they say, um, to the man who's born blind, we know Moses was a prophet, but we don't know where this man came from. Uh, They're so in love with their own religious position and their place of privilege as the interpreter of the prophets and whatever else. That um and it felt to them so right. They they had full licence to mistreat this guy who'd been born blind and then healed and his parents and to threaten them with you know, they were worried about being expelled from the synagogue and obviously some of the people who are talking with the Pharisees in the story feel feel um quite threatened. And the Pharisees have full license to do this because they're in the right. And um, so it's not just, you know, sexual perversions or or greed or you know all all evil in its forms has has as one of its properties the feature that it uh, the more it is practiced the more right it seems to those who practice it so you, you're left then with the situation that um, some of these questions about what makes a good life um, can't be tested empirically at an individual level but they can be tested empirically I think at a societal level and it is possible to look and to and this is what's the great power of story, um, and when you when you read, you know the the Old Testament narratives or the Dreamtime stories of the Aboriginals or the Greek myth and legend, a lot of it are just stories about the way people behaved, and how did that lead to its impacts on other people, and they were unable to see it. Uh, uh, um, the characters in in the Greek myth can't see. That they're bringing about their own demise, but we can see it, and that's what the power of story is, and it's it's true in the Old Testament, any any good story, um, and so when when as a society we get together and we say, well, look, we have noticed that people within our community have made different choices about the way to live lives, I think that we can, and under inspiration, I think this is largely what has happened in the in in the process of selecting books for a, a canon for the for the Bible. Is they're stories that do tell us what life is actually like, and one of the f- themes of the proverbs is that you may not be able to tell by experience in the short term uh, what makes a good life. There's the chapters following the one that we're just reading; several chapters are about the being careful of wear of the adulteress, and she looks wonderful and beautiful, and she tosses you with all sorts of pleasures, uh, but that's not a good life, and here's all the trouble it will bring to you and to those around you, and 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 so, um, it's one of the themes of Proverbs. I'm looking at a different proverb. I was just flicking to find an example at, at random. Here's one: A kind man brings benefit to himself, but a cruel man brings trouble on himself. That's not something that's obvious to either of those individuals necessarily.
1: Mm-hmm. I've been I've been reflecting on your statement, Cam. That what is a good life can't be tested empirically by an individual. Uh, And and I wonder whether that statement might be refined uh, a little for this reason. Um, An individual can uh, experience consequences of their decisions and indeed always does experience consequences of their decisions. And in in that sense, uh, the choices that they make uh, lead to consequences uh, that um, uh, they can uh, experience empirically within the ordinary meaning of that word I suspect that what you're intending to say is what you can't do is do double-blind experiments um, uh, on yourself to, to to test the outcome of your uh, of, of your choices. And in that and in that sense, you can't experience it in a, with a scientific empiricism. Uh, but you do nonetheless experience the real results of of, of your choices, and so you can test. Uh, the uh, the the outcomes of your decisions uh, in that way, but it doesn't take away from the point that you make about um, uh, community norms.
0: Yeah, it, but but even the evidence can be interpreted different ways, and different people will interpret the evidence different True ways. True enough. True enough. Um, so the the cruel man who brings trouble on himself will, I'm certain, have no effort in placing the blame for that on other people. Mm. Mm. And, and see like, evidence and, for
1: it. Likewise, the, uh, uh, the uh, right acting person experiencing the negative consequences uh, of their choices will be able to nonetheless see the uh, positive sides of doing the right thing even when uh, you experience yeah. uh, a negative uh, consequence in an, uh, on another value Matrix. Uh... We, we,
0: had a, we had a conversation about this, Ken, a, a while ago. Um, let me remind you of it. It was in the context of a friend of mine who, who's quit the teaching profession and is now a, a policeman uh, on the streets of Grafton. And he assures me that walking around at 3 o'clock in the morning on the streets of Grafton, dealing with the problems that arise, is considerably easier than, than policing a classroom. So um, I'll take his word for that. Uh, but... Uh, where did that lead to? Um, he was talking about one of, one of the difficult parts of his job is dealing with domestic violence cases, and one of the parts about that which is most difficult is it is necessary to get evidence, video evidence, a video, um, uh, what's it called, a victim statement, uh, yeah. a a, 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 witness a recording statement. of yeah. a witness statement, uh, saying what's happened in the moment, because usually by the time that it ends up in court. The couple have reconciled to each other and they're they're very much in love and the fact that he broke her arm two weeks ago is not going to stop them from getting married tomorrow.
1: Without referring to any individual case that I uh, deal with, Cameron, I would say that that's um, uh, so close to being a universal experience uh, uh, that it's disturbing. Well, Well, isn't it
2: it true that one of the aspects of that you know there's this this kind of abusive power control relationship Mm, mm. is the sort of mind games and manipulation aspect of it yep so so often you hear stories of people that can only in retrospect reflect on the ways they were actually sort of yeah manipulated trapped uh imprisoned but not so much against their will at the time uh, they were sort of manipulated, and, and it felt like it was their decision mm. to to stay well, or to participate or whatever.
0: Well, can uh, in, in the conversation you said to me um, how astonished you were that these people could claim to be in love after you know a violent encounter, and um, uh, I thought it's 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 possible that in the moment where they sit in front of you in the courtroom, that they are genuinely in love, that at that moment they, they might do something selfless for the other person cheerfully. Uh, but it would be a very dangerous thing if you lost your capacity to reason across spaces in time so that when you're upset, you think this is how, this is what our relationship really is. It's like this and it will always be like this and all I can see is what's causing the upset at the moment. And then when everything's going wonderful and you're deeply in love with it, each other, to think that that's what the relationship is. And we all suffer from this a little bit. We, we suffer from an inability to live outside any moment in time. And, and when Proverbs says, no, look, a kind man benefits himself and a cruel man brings trouble on himself. Uh, to get back to the example I read before, it's really calling us to live outside this moment in time. At this moment in time there may not seem to be much benefit in being kind. And there may seem to be a you know, wonderful dopamine kick waiting to happen by being cruel and exerting power over someone. Um, uh, but uh, your feelings of the moment are not a good, reliable um, predictor of the way things are.
2: The language here in Proverbs 4 that we read, I think, expresses that indirectly. In verse 17... For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. So the eating and drinking are things that we associate with feelings of pleasure and also of contentment. And yet what's happening here, the activities are wickedness and violence. So there is a seeming disconnect between the way it feels in the moment and the actual longer-term implications. I'm not sure that this is the point of the verse, but it's
1: another interesting um, reflection on that particular verse. Uh, When you eat something and when you drink something, you incorporate it into your physical body. Um, And uh, it seems to me that that might also be a truth of both righteousness and uh, of evil, that it becomes Mm. part of uh, who you are. It becomes uh, part of the way that you exist and how you uh, interact with the world. Uh, physically
2: yeah if i can nominate a
0: suggestion you go
2: the other thing that i wanted to point out this is going right back to where you were talking about selfishness versus selflessness in the idea of running that experiment that you can't do cam but it's actually been coming up in all of the things we're talking about in verse 16 the the one that attracted my attention because it speaks of the evildoer who cannot sleep unless they've done wrong the second half of the verse says they're robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, so the wrongdoing that is really being emphasized here is that kind of wrongdoing which specifically is against another person um you know, I suppose you could argue that if gluttony is a sin, it is a sin one does on one's own and suffers the consequences. There are some activities which are wrong but don't impact other people too much this is drawing attention to that kind of activity which is very much against someone uh, the word violence in verse 17 i think oh. echoes that you can i suppose be violent alone but to me it really brings to mind that context of altercation with another person uh, and the idea that you are restless to do violence to make someone stumble you're restless because you're wanting to cause harm to someone else. That's a pretty scary and frightening sort of thought. It's, uh, it seems anathema uh, to, mm. to the good life.
1: Um, uh, but there are uh, such people in the world.
0: Yeah, and it comes in milder forms. So, uh, you know, having a, having a class that consistently causes you trouble at school. They go out of their way to cause you trouble. And you walk into class and you think, right, today I'm going to issue someone a Friday detention. And it will be fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Now, the Friday detention is probably well-deserved. But uh, the feeling pleasure in the giving of it is probably not a good. Mm. I speak entirely hypothetically with this (laughs) example.
2: Well, it's interesting. I've just noticed something down in verse 19. So in verse 16, the... People being spoken of, they are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. Verse 19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what they stumble over. Mm. So it's this idea you're you're intent on doing some evil to someone else and you're blind to the way that that's actually coming back to hurt you. I mean, I'm probably reading a fair bit in there, but it's definitely using that same stumbling imagery. A bit like Jesus uh,
1: talking about uh, the blind leading the blind. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. There's a wonderful example, and I won't tell it, but uh, uh, all our listeners ought to go now and find a copy of the original Winnie the Pooh stories and read the episode in which Tigger is unbounced because it's an exact, exactly an example of this where uh, Rabbit and Pooh and Piglet decide that Tigger is too bouncy and he needs to be unbounced. And they decide to to uh to trim him down to size a little bit i guess is, and it it all ends up with exactly the re- reverse happens they aim to get him lost in the forest but they end up getting lost themselves and being rescued by tigger and <laughs> um and they come out very contrite saying all the things that they'd hoped tigger would say after mm. after he was lost and found so uh that's a, that's a good story. Uh, this idea of having a, a needing a community. Um, there's a, one of the most fascinating talks I ever went to, at a maths conference, was from a lady who was studying bees. Have I talked about bees' power of decision making on this podcast before?
1: I've heard you talk about it. Whether it was on this podcast, I can't say. My memory doesn't. The idea
0: is this: the idea is is this that a bee swarms. They're looking for a new site to nest, and. Most of the bees clump together in that football shape that you probably people may have seen hanging off a, off a branch. And um, they send out some scouts. And it's a very small percentage of the hive go out as scouts to look for prospective sites. And the scouts then find somewhere that would do, may not be very good, and they come back and tell all the other bees about it. And it's well documented about the way that bees communicate to each other. Um, They do it through little dances that you can learn to read as a researcher quite quickly. And they explain to the other bees around them that, hey, I've just found a place we could live and it's over there. And um, if they really like the place that they visited, they will do their dance for a long time. And lots of the other scouts will see it and they'll go to check it out. If if the site they found was not very good, they'll only do the dance for a short while and then... uh, only a few scouts will go to have a look and th- those scouts that go to look will come back and themselves do dances that will either be long or short depending on whether that particular bee thought it was a good sight or a bad site. and what happens is the scouts that go to the poor nesting sites uh, come back and only dance for a short amount of time and only send a small number of scouts out who themselves think it is poor and they come back and only do it for a short amount of time and that, that nesting site dies out within the consciousness of the of the swarm of bees whereas the good nesting sites you find a place that's dry and it's warm and it's whatever else you come back they dance for a long time which means lots of the other scouts see the dance they say oh i better go check that out and they go and check it out and they in turn come back and give a good report which sends even more and uh, as a hive bees uh, choose the correct site with something like 97 to 100 percent accuracy phenomenally accurate at the point where the swarm moves to the new hive site almost none of the bees have been to any site and maybe only a minority of the scouts have been to that site before so so no one bee has visited all the places and tried all the options but their interaction together has allowed them to find something that that is genuinely best and and it's it's you know an interesting analogy to to keep in mind, in relation to what we've been discussing, uh, we learn lots more together about what is a good life than each of us could find out on our own. And We pay attention to sources of wisdom. And, you know, there are things like rest which turn up in every religion. Every religion has days of rest. And we have prayer, and. but a lot of practices, in terms of if you wrote a list of what did people do, you know, um, monks who devoted themselves to, lives of prayer or or people today who have a prayer ministry and you write down well what do they do and then you write down the list of what a buddhist does when they meditate there's an incredible amount of overlap and you know i had an interesting discussion with my grandfather who said that they had some neighbors lachlan i think they're your neighbors now um who are buddhists and pa said that they're the best neighbors he's ever had wonderful people and this um uh, buddhist lady was explaining to pa the benefits of meditation at one point and explain what she does when she meditates. And Pa, who has trouble getting to sleep, thought to himself, oh, hang on, I've been meditating for years. I didn't know it was meditation, but that's that's what I've been doing every night to help me get to sleep um, <laughs> in terms of the specific like instructions. So when it comes to something like rest and we see such uh, unanimity across Christian denominations, about the value of rest across the faiths of all type, the value of rest across people of no faith who advocate something like rest. We start to say, hey, this is obviously something in the moment when it feels like there's lots of urgent things that need to be done. It might not be obvious that rest is a good thing, but it seems to be a truth at which we have collectively arrived.
2: Mm. Mm. And I think not all rest- not all restlessness is motivated by the sort of urgent need to do evil that's referred to in this proverb. But I think that there is some, you know, like we were commenting on there's There is a certain synergy between restlessness, dissatisfaction, jealousy, envy, uh, evil desires, violence and wickedness. There, there's a certain sense in which those things get bundled together. In the same kind of life activities and and approach to the world and rest invariably seems to go with the the words like calm and content and um the sort of approach to the world and way of living life that when you stand as an as an observer you think wow that's the sort of life i wish i could live mm. I've commented before, it's remarkable to me that when you live in a society that is so obsessed with personal advancement and personal benefit and gain, why is there such universal respect for someone like Mother Teresa? Because she's the antithesis of that approach to life. And there seems to be a very profound and widespread sense as an observer, oh, wow, you know, what she did was good, was impressive. Was to be respected.
0: We, we admire luck, um, people who do extraordinary things. You look at the Guinness Book of Records. My kids have just brought home Guinness Book of Records from the library, and it's always a popular book. And it's, you know, hey, this person balanced 11 chairs on his chin for two minutes or something. You know, that's absolutely incredible. <laughs> and the only reason it's it's incredible is because it's hard. Well, I'll tell you something much harder than that. And that is consistently living as if the people you meet are people in the same way that you are a person. That's that's a hard thing. And I think, I think deep down we acknowledge it to be a hard thing. And when, when you get that reminder, you think, ah, oh, yeah, of course. You know, The Mother of Teresa is a reminder like that. There's a story about Gandhi running to catch a train once and he dropped one of his shoes and jumped when he scrambled into the door at the last minute, and the first thing he did is whipped off his other shoe and threw it onto the platform. And someone who was with him said, well, why on earth did you do that? And he said, well, what good would it be for someone to find one shoe? <laughs> and when you when you think of it that way of course the one shoe was useless to him and the other shoe yeah. was useless to the other person but throwing them at least was used to someone and you, you hear that and you think oh yeah that's, that's so obvious <laughs> and when you think of it from the other person's point of view that that's that's really really good but it is hard yeah.
1: hmm. it's one of the things that um, forgive me if I've said this before on the podcast but uh, I, I was listening to a lecture at by the philosopher Dallas Willard uh, some time ago. And he asked the question, what's the, what's the one uh, characteristic of Jesus that comes through uh, the Gospels? And you know, everybody said love and uh, all of those traditional answers. And his answer was, he was relaxed. Mm. Um, he, there just seemed to be a confidence uh, of knowing what he was, that what he was doing was the right thing to do. Uh, in the situation and he was able to be relaxed about it. There, there, there was a, a, a peace uh, to what he was doing and so much of what we do is running around anxious trying to do the right thing uh, as much as anything because we really don't know what the right thing to do is or if we do know well, in that, case, that it's the right thing
2: we, we, we don't know it with sufficient confidence to act on it yeah well sometimes Uh, we know of a right thing to do but we don't want to do that so we go rushing around trying to find another another right right thing thing to do (laughs) that'll be just a little bit easier and we hope a little
1: more beneficial for us yeah well can the great
0: great secret to success within an institution um and i say this somewhat satirically i hope this is not from personal experience but um is not so much as to do the right thing as to consistently look like you're doing the right thing. (laughs) Mm. And and so, for instance, if you're wandering around a school, it's highly advantageous to carry with you a pile of marking about three inches thick.
1: uh, And there is, of course, the Adrian Plass book called uh, Looking Good, Being Bad, The Art of Churchmanship. So tick off the Plass
2: reference. We've had a Lewis reference
1: and an aviation reference. Um, we're in
2: good form (laughs) we're in good form as we're we're probably coming towards a close I have an interesting question to ponder motivated partly by your comment about Jesus being relaxed is there any sense in inverting verse 16 and saying something like for they cannot sleep unless they have done right they are robbed of sleep unless they have done kindness to someone Um, Mm. you know that's also a restless state of being but motivated by the desire to do good in other words which what is verse the was that correct one? well this is verse no 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 it's not a verse it's me ah. having a go at inverting verse 16 yeah and i'm asking the question what is the better inversion one inversion that we've discussed at length t- is to be at rest rather than restless so instead of being restless with our desire to do evil we can be calm content and at rest in a state of peaceful good another way to invert it is what i just said we are restless to be kind and good and i'm i'm not quite sure which is the better antithesis to this verse 16 in proverbs 4 and i'm not even quite sure what's the better approach i think literally there are probably times in our lives where the right thing is to be restlessly agitated with a desire to do good and there are probably times where the right thing is to be able to be at rest and at peace
0: yeah good questions uh let's throw them over to our our listeners and we do welcome the comments that we receive you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'd be really glad to hear from you and uh we might pick up some of those threads in our next discussion. I think it's um, very good questions. I think I think parallel to the discussion, lock. You know, we've got a whole quarter on rest. Um, when is rest inappropriate? Because Mother Teresa didn't rest mm. if something needed doing for someone. And uh, you know, it's certainly the case that I I don't spend a lot of my Sabbaths helping other people. And I wonder if there's um, some food for discussion in that. I do have a nomination for next week's uh, discussion. I'd, I would love to spend an episode just looking at some of the fun images in Proverbs. And, uh, you know, here's just a few. Uh, the words of gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's innermost parts. Um, uh, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Uh, there's the famous one about the dripping tap. Uh which I believe is is, a, is an is an analogy for a nagging wife. Uh, there's there's one here that's very peculiar that I think deserves discussion. There's uh, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Uh, that's that's got some some depth to that. And uh, the, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Uh, so I think I think that it would be fun to spend an episode just looking at some of the really fun. Fun images as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. So is a sluggard to those who send him. Oh, so that sluggard's full of wonderful resting, images, isn't it? That that sluggard is resting too much. That's his trouble. Yeah, well,
2: that's uh, we've already talked about this. I think in the first episode of this quarter, and uh, we're going to have to come back to it at least a few times because uh, sometimes the sluggard is simply the person who thinks that he's at rest.
0: Right, well, let's let's leave it there. Lots of fun ideas. Please join us again for next week's discussion. If you know someone who'd enjoyed this podcast, please share it with them. Uh, we enjoy uh, making these recordings. We enjoy any feedback we get. We do hope that you find, enjoy them as much as we do. And uh, it's unlikely that we'll end up internet celebrities out of this podcast, which is uh, suits me just well. Uh, But I would be anxious that anyone who'd who'd benefit from the discussion or who'd like to share their thoughts be able to do that. So uh, feel free to pass uh, this podcast on to anyone that you think might enjoy it. And please join us again next week.